Welcome to an exclusive podcast brought to you by VJ Hemonk, an open access video journal that provides healthcare professionals with trusted and up-to-date information on oncology through innovative digital media, including video interviews, podcasts, webcasts, and more. Today, we hear from four leading AML clinicians who discuss updates in immunotherapy-based treatments, including checkpoint blockade, anti-CD47 therapies, bites, and CAR T-cell approaches. So hello, I'd like to welcome you to our one of our AML sessions. So today we're going to discuss AML in the context of immunotherapy. My name is Marian Sokleve. I'm a consultant in hematology at the LMU in Munich. And I'm very happy that I'm joined by um, three colleagues. So um, it's Naval Deva from um, MD Anderson. It's David Solomon from Moffitt, Florida, and I'm also joined by Emma Seidan from Yale. So I'm um, very glad that you all joined. So also in this side of post-SOHO meeting, I think we like to discuss a few uh, very interesting novel um, results of clinical trials that are currently running in the field of immunotherapy in AML. And I like to sort of structure our discussion um, on the different immunotherapy platforms. So we have the checkpoint inhibitors that on the one hand target um, several different uh, checkpoint molecules and at the same time unleash endogenous immune responses. We have the bispecifics where we have further advances in several clinical trials. And clearly there are also the CAR T cells, very challenging um, in the AML fields. So I'd like to start with um, talking about the checkpoints molecules and um, I'd like to ask my colleagues what they think, um, what's currently um, the status and where we are going. Maybe, um, maybe start with the checkpoint molecules that we already know from other entities before we then enter novel checkpoint molecules where we have um, heard very interesting data at ASCO and also at the SOHO meeting. So maybe, um, Naval, do you want to maybe start? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, thanks, Marion. So, uh, yeah, pleasure to be here. And um, I think, you know, the offset, there's a lot happening in immunotherapy and AML compared to five, six years ago. So I think it's an exciting area in general in development with a number of different modalities. Uh, you know, we've done a lot of work with the uh, traditional immune checkpoints, the PD-1, PD-L1, CTLA-4, based therapies in numerous combinations with hypomethylating agents, with induction chemotherapy in maintenance. And, and I think that, you know, we are seeing some improvement in certain subsets, however, clearly not uh, blockbuster activity and, and not what we have seen in many of the solid tumors where we see very prolonged responses for years in some subset of patients. So a lot of our biomarker work does seem to suggest that similar to the molecular heterogeneity in acute myeloid leukemia, there is also immune heterogeneity. And whether you look at it as degree of T-cell infiltration, you know, by numerically or percentage of bone marrow or functionally, which is even better using single cell cytokine analyses or other such modalities, we can really see that there are some AML patients where you do have good T-cell infiltration and good activation. And those were the ones who responded to treatments such as HMA-PD-1 or PD-1-based treatment. So I think if this kind of is developed further. It has to be probably biomarker driven, just like we do for FLIP3, IDH, 
uh, TP53, but I don't think it's a general scheme. Now, there may be one group of patients, such as post-transplant patients, where there are there is uh, very encouraging data with CTLA4 inhibition uh, showing some good responses, especially people with extramedullary disease. And at MD Anderson, we are kind of prioritizing extramedullary patients or those who are post-transplant for the CTLA-4 combination, CTLA-4 with HMA or CTLA-4 with PD-1 uh, with or without HMA. And we are seeing some good responses in that population that uh, we'll hopefully update uh, in the near future. But I think um, we need to find our own specific immune checkpoints. And I think there are some that are emerging uh, that we'll talk about more going forward, such as maybe TIM3 on T-cells, maybe TIGIT, and then a lot of work uh, that David and me and others are doing with CD47, which is not T-cell, but macrophage. So I think these will probably be the ones to go forward and we can discuss them more. Right. So, I mean, if you look at the list of clinical trials that are recruiting and checkpoints in combinations, mainly with hypomethylating agents, but also with chemotherapy, I think there's still um, a lot of data that's going to be evolved and, and answer the questions. I mean, clearly, monotherapy hasn't shown any benefit, if anything, the combination. And I just wonder if you can comment on the trial um, that was negative on um, combining a develop-up in, in conjunction with hypomethylating agent and how you see this data compared to the data um, you generated in the immunization. Sure, sure. No, I, I think uh, this is a great group. I mean, I think there is a wide representation of the several of the modalities that are being tested. I'd like to add a couple of things to what I think Naval uh, mentioned, you know, one step back is that I, I think the, the number of studies that have been done have first shown that these uh, combinations are tolerable, are doable. Um, in my experience, there has been a lot of hesitancy among myeloid investigators to use these uh, type of drugs because of a couple of reasons. One of them is that the management of uh, immune-mediated uh, toxic reactions can be challenging because you have often to do biopsies. When you are dealing with pneumonitis, uh, uh, it's difficult to do a lung biopsy compared to a patient with solid tumor uh, where they have good platelets. Our patients have often low platelets, so doing biopsies you know, to look for colitis, for example, is challenging. Uh, we often have fungal pneumonias, and sometimes figuring out what you have is a pneumonitis versus a fungal infection can be a challenge. So there was a lot of hesitancy, I think, originally. And my take on, on a lot of those uh, first trials, I would say, is that the combinations are doable. There has been only one or two trials that shown, like, uh, I think, a toxic uh, signal. But for the most part, I think um, most of the other trials have shown that these drugs can be administered as long as you monitor the patient carefully, intervene early with steroids and looking for adverse events. I do agree with Neville that I think um, overall, uh, especially with monotherapy, the signal has been lacking. I think the combination trials have generally um, been somewhat mixed in their results, but one of the problems in general in, in the field has been uh, a lot of the trials that were enrolling, uh, in my view, like single arm trials that enrolling frontline and, uh, and relapsed and uh, monotherapy and combination. Small numbers, those are rare cancers, so it's not like solid tumors where you have much bigger numbers. So I think sometimes it's kind of tough when you add the degree of the immune landscape heterogeneity between these patients to pick up exactly where, where, where you have to go. And uh, I think this uh, randomized trial that you alluded to 
uh, the you know the the first randomized trial uh, among both AML and MDS, but I, I think mostly for AML older unfit patients with AML, in which the patients receive azacitidine or azacitidine with dorvalumab, um, was negative in terms of both the primary uh, endpoint, which was the response rate, but also in terms of the progression-free survival and overall survival. Um, I think this in this trial, the survival was in the range of 13 months for both arms, uh, including the azacitidine monotherapy arm, which again, in my mind, shows you the importance of doing these type of randomized trials because 13 months with monotherapy in older patients, if you look at historical control, seven to eight months, if you did only the combination arm, you might think that there's a signal, but when you look at the monotherapy um, you know, I, I think you'd realize that the signal is not necessarily there. So I do think uh, looking at uh, looking at uh, biomarker-driven approaches um, to try to select patients, uh, looking at rational designs of trials rather than just combining uh, whatever immune checkpoint inhibitor with whatever standard treatment we all use, and looking at novel, in, uh, novel um, checkpoints like the CD47 that uh, both David and uh, Navel have done a lot of work with, um, as well as uh, TEM3 and uh, LAG3 and some of the other novel uh, endpoints. I, I do think that we will see eventually some way for immune checkpoint inhibition um, in some capacity, whether it's in the post-transplant setting, whether it's at, at the MRD level. Um, but it, it sounds to me like we, we definitely need to do more work and uh, in collaboration between between us investigators and industry to kind of design the trials in I think in the most informative way. Yeah, absolutely. And I also just like to add that the mechanism of action of the checkpoint inhibitors might be also quite different, and we still don't know exactly um, what the mode of action is and if it's you know, maybe even depleting uh, uh, macrophages in the environment or if it's actually um, blocking interaction of T cells and so on. So also the mechanism of action might be quite different also depending on the type of AML or the different disease settings. So I guess biomarkers are the way to go and understand um, a mechanism of action. But I guess so many times now already CD47 um, has popped up. So um I'm uh, happy to uh, give the word to David and uh, tell us a little bit um, about C47 as the emerging star. Um, although we've already seen very interesting data also in the lymphoma setting, so it's been around for quite some time already. Yeah, sure. So um, I think as 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 Novel you know alluded to you know earlier as well, I think you know now instead of talking about adaptive in, you know, immunity, we're talking about potentially unleashing innate, although there is clear, you know, correlations between innate and adaptive immunity, even with, with 47 targeting. And I think, you know, preclinically, you know, several groups, although I think there's a lot to grow from the translational perspective, show, you know, upregulation of, of 47, both in higher risk MDS and acute myeloid leukemia, and at least in preclinical models, you know, azacitidine can be synergistic with Magrolimab by upregulating the pro-EE signal such as calreticulin. But I do think there's probably a lot of data that's going to emerge, you know, I think retrospectively now based on the, the, the clinical responses, you know, that we've seen to date. So I think now, you know, through multiple presentations, again, most recently at, at, at EHA and ASCO, clearly, 
you know, the combination has, has been, at least in high-risk MDS, quite transformative from at least a, a complete remission rate. Um, and I think not, not just responses. I think we always have to look carefully at what the quality of the responses are. So there are very few marrow CRs alone. Almost all responses are either CR or, or some sort of marrow response in the setting of transfusion independence or objective hematologic improvement. Um, and clearly versus, you know, acecytidine therapy alone has, has been quite exciting. And that's really, you know, leading up to the phase three enhanced trial, which is launching, which is a you know, double blind placebo controlled study of, of combination therapy versus acecytidine alone. Although I think the significant interest similar to the venetoclax approval strategy in, in, in AML is, you know, are the response rates, can they, you know, support, you know, earlier, you know, approval, you know, as the study continues to follow up. I think importantly, and I think this is going to be, you know, shown with, with ongoing follow-up, but, you know, we've had median follow-ups between six and 10 months, depending on what subgroup you divide. And, you know, we've not had any median duration of response or overall survival, although clearly longer follow-up is, is, is quite critical. Um, and then, you know, from translational and biomarker perspectives, we've not really had a group that's you know, predicted for poor responses really ac across molecular subsets. But I think what we've been intrigued by is, is particularly P53 and AML. And we have, uh, you, know, uh, you know, amended the AML arm to basically preferentially enroll those patients. But across, you know, 16 MDS and AML patients, you know, we have about a 75% CR rate. Most of those are uh, AML patients. And again, more follow-up is needed, but the responses have been have been durable, and I would say, you know, exciting in that in that area to date. Right, Naval, do you want to comment from your experience? Yeah, no, I mean, I think obviously very exciting, and but the data is early. You know, the numbers we have shown so far are, but those are the numbers shown, and, and the study is ongoing. So hopefully, by ASH, uh, there will be more updated data. I, I mean, to me, the most interesting is the activity in the TP53 AML, as as David mentioned. Uh, that's something that I don't necessarily think we knew a priori or mechanistically uh, was something that we had, you know, we would love to say we did, but it, it, it kind of just happened. We saw it. And, uh, and the question still remains is, is the re response really enriched in those patients or are we actually just seeing TP53 agnostic? Uh, because, you know, even the non-TP53 actually are doing well and and the ASH abstract will be out soon and you'll see the data, they actually do really well survival-wise. So I actually think what's happening is you're just not seeing as big an attrition in response and survival with TP53, maybe because the macrophages are not as impacted by the mutation as the molecular machinery or even the T-cell machinery. For example, you know, we looked at T-cells in TP53 mutated and, and those had very poor function cytokine production. So I think that's very, very uh, interesting. And of course, then leads to the concept of could you combine you know, something like HMA vent, which has some uh, activity, does give you better response rates, 55, 60% compared to ASA with something like megrolumab. And then of course, there's also drugs like APR that are emerging for DP53. So I think the next year or two are gonna be very interesting uh, to see how we can really improve the TP53 AML. The other thing that I think is very interesting with this drug, especially given that we're calling it an immune agent, is that we see almost no immunitis. And to me, that is very, very intriguing. I mean, we've treated lots of bites. You have them, we have them. Uh, we've used a lot of different PD-1, PD-L1, CTL, you name it. They all have some degree of immune toxicity, more or less. And with this agent, I mean, so far, we've seen almost close to zero uh, organitis or CRS. So to me, 
I think there's some off-target direct activity that, that, you know, hopefully with a lot of correlative analysis there's ongoing uh, will emerge. But uh, that's, yeah, that's kind of where we're at right now. The excellent results or the promising, at least very early data, if you think that CD47 is ubiquitously expressed, and I mean, there's a little bit higher expression maybe on AML, but it's it's not a very specific target. And I would have assumed from also preclinical and the lymphoma data that if anything, you need to combine with the targeting um, antibody construct. Um, so I was actually... Uh, very surprised. So um, we are actually working on a bi-specific uh, or bifunctional antibody construct um, where we combine 47, for example, with CD33 and CD123 in one construct. Um, as we were always assuming that monotherapy is, there's going to be antigen sync and unspecific. Um, so I'm also very um, amazed at the side effects, also hemolysis or something so far, I mean, right. you know better, we haven't treated any patients yet, um, but are very manageable, right? So I was actually very surprised to see that. Yeah, I think, as, I mean, it's probably important to come. I mean, we do see sort of this first cycle anemia. So we, right. we yeah. transfuse patients at higher thresholds. And, you know, there's an average drop of a half a gram per deciliter, although there's a range and patients can have bigger drop. But what's nice is typically by the end of cycle one, they're, they're close back to baseline and then really improve over time. And we've not had transfusion, you know, issues on patients long-term on therapy, including, you know, patients, you know, out over, over a year in treatment. You know, I do think, again, how much is... Is, is, is purely, you know, macrophage-mediated phagocytosis and how much may be LSC targeting. I think that's a really, you know, key, you know, key question, I think, in all of this. Uh, and I think that goes along with TIM3 and some of the other markers, too, how much is potentially LSC eradication. Uh, and I think really critical, you know, serial and single-cell studies need to be looked at from that question. But I do think there is a significant uh, probably proportion that that may be some of the importance, yeah. Yes. Emma, do you, do you have any further comments or you want to use it in combination with PD-1, PD-1 blockade? No, I, I think I echo some of your comments. You know, I actually worked with, a, with an anti-CD47 that was even before Magrolimab. So in some ways, when the initial data was coming, I was uh, along the lines of what you were saying. I was a little bit skeptical because, um, you know, the trial, the, it's an agent called CC9002 from Celgene. Um, basically, the trial enrolled 27, 28 patients. I treated 16 of them, so <laughs> I've given a lot of, of this drug, and um, we, we did not see any, any responses. I, I think later, of course, as we've done the translational data, and you know, like negative studies, this is an abstract sitting in the NASH 2019 library somewhere. Uh, hopefully, we can get the paper out at one point. But basically, the translational data showed that there is, I think, which explains the lack of activities, uh, there was um, a lot of immunogenicity. So there was a lot of uh, antibodies generated against the antibody itself. So I, I guess that also tells you that even, you know, we tend to think of, for example, PIMPRO and NEVO and all of these drugs as like one in, you know, in the same class. I think these are examples that it's not only like, you know, and all anti-CD47s are similar. You know, there's a number of other agents that are out there as well, uh, basically at the ALX, I think, and the delirium. And, um, and I think it's important to, uh, that those should not be just uh, treated equally, like there could be differences in terms of how they induce responses, but also in terms of the other side of the CD47, which is the CERB alpha, uh, targeting their agents that are going after that as well. So um, 
I'm intrigued biologically as well as you said. Um, you know, and I don't fully understand the specificity. Uh, why is it so specific for myeloid malignancies? Uh, given that this is a uniform, uniform mechanism across all cancers in terms of the CD40 expression and the TP53. So it's kind of an interesting story, but in all honesty, in AML and MDS, it's not uncommon. We've been using linalidomide forever without really understanding. Uh, and each two, three years, we get a new mechanism of, of action. So as long as the drug works, you know, ultimately, I think we will figure out how does it work. But I think sooner or later, I mean, with enough follow-up, I think we'll have a very good sense of, you know, I think with TB53, generally, I'm not as excited about responses because I do think we see responses. The problem is that patients often, you know, relapse and die. So I think if you have a solid survival signal, I think this drug would be a winner. So, I, you know, I, I just look for uh, hopefully longer data. And as was mentioned, the randomized trials are already um, starting both in MDS and uh, AML. So, I, um, you know, I think we are looking at a, a very robust program. So I'm, I'm pretty sure we'll know for sure soon. Yes, absolutely. I agree. I, I mean, I think the P53 is interesting because, I mean, we know even after ALO, they have a detrimental outcome and probably the biospecifics and maybe even the CAR T cells, there's the topic of P53 and, and T cell function. So um, it might be with a different mode of action, um, this might be less relevant. So, but we'll see. Um, so, I guess we'll, we'll switch now to the biospecifics and I give myself two minutes for talking now, but uh, <laughs> so, yes. yeah, so I think the biospecifics in AML um, have gone a more rocky road than we expected. So the translation from ALL to AML was more difficult maybe than expected. And um, most of the trials are still running and, and recruiting patients, and a lot of trials haven't even re um, uh, achieved the, um, uh, the final um, and dose. So I think one of the issues in AML and the biospecifics is finding uh, relevant serum concentrations. So I think it was uh, very much misjudged that probably we have some kind of antigen sink. Um, so if you look at the... AMG 330 and the Half-Life Extended AMG 673 trials, which we are involved. Um, one can see that currently we are applying 960 micrograms and in the BLIN we are with 28 micrograms already. So we clearly had a challenge and, um, and time was spent in moving up the dose. And, and the other thing is that was probably expected is that we do see cytokine release syndrome as the most common and um, highly relevant uh, uh, side effects. And um, currently the strategy, although nobody knows if this is actually the perfect strategies is the dose steps. So um, in the AMG 330 trial, we have now three dose steps and are still moving up. And um, I think so far one can conclude that uh, with this safety um, is okay. And CRS clearly also learning from the CAR T cells with the addition of tocilizumab um, is manageable. But um, we still um, are uh, challenged by seeing um, efficacy. Um, and I think two things have to be considered. First of all, that we still haven't reached our final dose. And the second aspect is most of the patients that have been included in these trials have um, a very adverse um, uh, risk profile from the 
cytogenetics. Um, half of them had been allergenic uh, transplantation, uh, six median prior treatment lines. So it's a really difficult challenge. So I think um, the very interesting part is that we are now moving in the MRD setting. So we are opening the cohort in AMG330 for treating MRD patients. And I clearly, I mean, that's also, again, similar to the blend data, is the more suitable uh, patient population in this also comes back to what Naval in the beginning says, we sort of need the AML, cytogenetics and characteristics, but also we need sort of some kind of immunofitness. And I think um, it's just not gonna work uh, in patients um, that are really far advanced uh, in treatment line. Um, and I think in that sense, also the high fluff extended molecules might be easier because we build up faster um, uh, relevant PKs in the patients. So um, it might be easier to come up to a relevant dose in this uh, a patient cohort. And then I also think we'll have innate uh, adaptive immune escape mechanisms. So this will also bring us back to the checkpoint molecules where I really think um, we not only need to move early in treatment line, but we definitely need also to combine um, as this um, can easily be observed uh, also from the patients treated that we have an upregulation of pdl one as an, one of the obvious immune escape mechanisms. So I think, uh, and there are um, a lot of different molecules running. Um, we have the challenge of the right target antigen. We have the CRS, we have to cope. We are currently not in the wrong clinical situation. And we probably also need uh, some combination, I think, to get efficacy. So that is sort of my take. Um, yeah. I don't know who wants to comment. Yeah, I mean, I can comment. We have a lot of these bites uh, ongoing, right? MD Anderson, many with you as well, Marion, on collaboration. I think, I think the biggest issue is we haven't moved to the right patient population. And I don't know why. And I know all of us have been talking to the companies. But I think really to test this, we have to go where the blinatumab or the CAR-T and ALL have shown best activity. Earlier salvage, you have T-cell fitness low disease burden, and then maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. I don't know, maybe it will still not work. But that's really where Blina, there's a lot of data showing the CD8 to Treg ratio, the low disease burden, early salvage is, is the best population. The second is we are starting uh, the combo, you know, with the PD-1. Uh, and I think this will, will be either go big or go home. We may <laughs> either get just tremendous CRS and uh, it'll shut down in 10 patients, or we may get tremendous CRS and 80% response like a CAR-T. And, you know, that's what I keep, whenever I discuss with the bite companies because they say the magic solution. So I think you have to have one, either you have a response rate of 80%, like a CAR-T and ALL, and then I will do everything. I will admit the patient 25 day TOSI, whatever. Or you have a response rate of 30%, like an IDH inhibitor and no toxicity almost. You cannot have 30, 35% and treat it like a CAR. So I think that's what we'll find out that either low disease burden or the combo is there a future for them? And uh, hopefully we'll know in like a year or so. We also see in the CAR T cells, you can give the checkpoint day minus one, right? We, yeah. in the original clinical trials, but we now also get safety signals if you get it early, right? To get the T cells moving, right? Yeah, yeah. I completely so, agree. Yeah, I do think, I mean, just to come, you know, I think, you know, translationally, again, I think thinking that we're going to treat an all-encompassing relapse refractory patient population and, and have a good readout with any of these, I, I think is, is less likely. And so I think really the biology and looking at the T cell infiltration and the markers, even 33, 123 are, you know, are they or are they not? They also have their own toxicity. We have all these CAR T trials, both 33, 123 open. And I, again, I hope, hopefully we'll have some data 
over this next year. I think really, you know, are these antigens you know, worth targeting based on single antigen targeting, or do we you know, critically need you know, multiple target? Is it antigen escape? Is it more of a T cell? Obviously, we have off the, you know, auto and allo products that may help address that. I mean, yeah, to me, I want to see the efficacy and particularly the durable efficacy. You know, I'm okay with responses. I, I think a lot of them have been very weak in how they're presented and often the durability is very short. If I had a 20% CR, you know, but it lasted for a year, then I would be extremely excited, particularly if we could identify those patients. Um, but I think trying to see that with these therapies. And then of course you can move it in all, in all the right settings, you know, MRD, et cetera. But uh, yeah, it's still a long ways to go, but I, I, at least there's some efficacy out there. Hopefully we, we can make it better in the next uh, year or so. Yeah, and I think I would echo the same sentiment. I mean, I think some, cautious optimism. I, I think one of the challenges with these agents have been the logistics. I mean, that 28-day infusion, and nobody wants, you know, to do, um, you know, there has been a lot of attempts to try to do uh, longer-acting formulations, but when you look from a biological point of view, even at the plenatumumab and endotuzumab, which again, I think were major breakthroughs, but you get like deep responses, MRD negativity, but the median survival is six months, basically, or less. Most patients are dying um, very quickly. And I think the ALL space is somewhat different. Like we have not had the same, the kind of things have flipped in the last few years, like where AML have, you know, lagged behind for a long time. And then suddenly in the last three, four years, you have nine drugs basically um, approved within the AML space. And I wonder somewhat, where the pipes kind of are going to find their uh, footings. I, I, I do think with those monotherapy results, it's really difficult. I mean, I, I do think that uh, focusing on the right niche along the lines of what Neville was saying, basically, on the MRD positivity, unless I think you can show that really reducing this before transplant, for example, is going to prolong survival, I'm still not quite sure um, what does it mean because, again, it's approved for plenatumumab for MRD positive to MRD negative disease, but I'm still not quite sure biologically what does that mean. I mean, I'm, maybe I'm, maybe someone can update me, but I don't think there has been data that this on the long run after transplant with plenatumumab, if you convert from MRD positive to MRD negative, that translates into longer um, survival because I, maybe we are probably not using the right way of looking at MRD, the level of sensitivity is probably different. So I do think those agents um, will need to have a better strategic planning on where they, where they should be positioned and probably not on monotherapy. Yes. So I think we make a last round. We already started to do this um, and uh, just give everybody a chance um, to give his uh, opinion on the CAR T cells. Um, in AML, I think um, it was already addressed and a lot of the topics have an, a clear overlap to the bites. I mean, uh, the, the target antigen, also the clinical situation. Um, and I think it's might be even more challenging with CAR T cells. I mean, they're very interesting data coming with the NK um, constructs. So um, maybe, Noel, you want to comment first? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think we're way behind in, in CAR T cells from lymphoma and ALL. And, and I think it's the same issue that we've discussed that identifying optimal ant antigens is still uh, something we haven't been able to do for AML. So, you know, we have a number of the constructs ongoing. They're all in very early phase one, five or 10 patients and no clear signal. So um, 
I know there are, you know, new efforts and off the shelf and combinations coming and we will see in the next couple of years. Yeah. Yes. David, do you want to, you already commented on it, right? Yeah, no, I, 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 I think, uh, I, I think you know, not only you know, is there single antigen activity, yes, no, and then I think potentially looking at, you know, whether or not sort of an aloe product that likely needs in more intense lipodepletion, if that can improve this, or some of the other novel technologies that may, may, may get around some of the T-cell dysfunction that uh, these patients likely intrinsically have. So I think hopefully we'll, we'll have our, like, foundation set over this next work. I, I do think my hypothesis is that you know, multi-antigen targeted cars, and we really have to go for efficacy and not safety at this point from my, my perspective is, is important, but we'll see. Yeah, and I just want to comment one thing. I think it's also important that we always realize the target antigen might not be the same depending on which construct you're using and which epitope, which affinity, membrane, distance, and so on. So it's also important that we don't burn target antigens just because of a toxicity. I mean, it has to be taken seriously, but it might be still quite different depending um, which construct we are actually using, right? And, and, and which co-stim domain and, and et cetera, yes. I completely agree. Emma, do you want anything to say? I I think, you know, in addition to what was being said, I I think the main issues with with these, I think, remain the toxicity. How do you limit the life uh, of those T-cells? I think, you know, those suicide genes or RNA-based T-cells or um, other approaches. um, And, you know, are you using these as a bridge to transplant or... Uh, do you do you have that tale of some patients have, that have you know prolonged lasting responses similar to what was seen with ALL and diffuse large basal lymphomas? I think all of these are going to be very important uh, questions as the clinical trials get conducted in terms of how those get positioned. But ultimately, I think because of the manufacturing issues and because of um, uh, you know the high um, toxicity that need very specialized care and ICU care these type of treatments are going to be very limited compared to the other things we talked about, like the PICE or the immune checkpoint inhibitor, which still needs some experience. But I think this cellular therapy is even, you know, a completely new level. And ultimately, if we get those allogenic uh, CAR T cells, uh, you know, uh, kind of working, I think that would be really a major breakthrough in, in my mind. So um, I think a very exciting field, but probably the uh, the least evolved so far, uh, at least clinically, uh, compared to the other agents we discussed. Absolutely. I completely agree. Um, and I think there's a, still a lot of work uh, in understanding, uh, identifying biomarkers, uh, identifying suitable patients. But I just, as the last word, like to remind that uh, immunotherapy is the most successful anti-leukemic treatment, as we've seen in allogenic stem cell transplantation. So, um, I think um, there's a lot of potential in immunotherapy. We just have to figure out which platform for which kind of patient and which clinical situation and how to smartly combine. And I guess uh, it's still a lot of work ahead of us. So with this, um, I'd like to thank um, you for this uh, really nice discussion and um, thank the audience for listening and uh, looking forward Probably next update uh, we'll have after Ash. And um, see you along. If you have found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Apple, Spotify, and Podbean, so we can continue to deliver expert-led content to you. 
Follow us on Twitter at VJHemonk and join in on the conversation. And finally, don't forget to visit VJHemonk.com for all the latest updates in the AML field.